All right, we're in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. You can follow along as I read it in my Bible. Oh, and you know, I'm so, I, wow, I am out of it this morning. Um, if we could stand for the reading of God's word. <laughs> Titus 2, 11 through 14, this is what it says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You can be seated as we pray. Father, we come to you not based on our own merit, but upon uh, the basis of what Jesus has done for us, In his life, ministry, death, and resurrection, we come to you in his name. And Father, we also come to you because we are weak, and um, we cannot understand the things that you want us to understand were it not for your help. And so Father, we pray that you will take the truths of Scripture and by your Holy Spirit, make them clear to us this morning. And not just in an intellectual, cognitive sort of sense, but we pray that you would take your word and help us to apply it to our day-to-day lives. And so God, I pray that you will be both with listener and with speaker this morning. Pray and I ask for your help as I just sense my own weakness, my own inadequacy. I pray that you will help me to preach so that I can help my friends better understand your word. We ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I would like to begin by offering you a job. It's not a normal job. Um, It's a lifetime job. The, The job title is Christian. The start date is actually, you might have already started, it's when you were saved. And the end date, there is no retirement in this job of the Christian, it's when you die. Um, Your pay, I won't pay you, but God will pay you, and it's going to all be deferred until the end. Uh, As for benefits, um, there are some benefits, um, but not things like health care and a retirement plan. And I want to read for you, uh, maybe if you're familiar with the job description, the areas of focus or the main responsibilities of your job as a Christian. So this is the Christian's job description in bullet form. Be holy. Be kind to others. Love one another. Pray regularly. Run from immorality and exercise self-control. Love your wives, respect your husbands. Do not give in to the desires of the flesh. 
take an interest in a younger Christian and invest in him or her. Be submissive to authorities, do good works, avoid fighting, be courteous and respectful. All of these things are activities or practices that we as Christians should be engaged in according to the New Testament. In fact, many of these were taken from the book of Titus itself. And these are just some of the things that you and I should be practicing as Christians. But when I give it to you like that, when I just give you a list of commands, it can be a bit disorienting and unhelpful. Strive for good, do good, and be good. Imagine with me this morning if I handed you an inflatable bouncy castle told you to go over to the gym and told you to figure it out. You might be able to figure out, okay, we need to blow this thing up, but without an electric pump, you would be at a loss as to how to do it. And it's a bit like the Christian's job description. If I just give you a list of commands, you're probably a bit lost as to how to carry out those commands. With just the commands and with nothing more, you and I are like the person left to blow up the bouncy castle without an electric pump. So in our text this morning, Paul is going to show us where the enablement and motivation for obeying those commands come from. Put very simply, what Paul is going to give us in our text this morning is that he's going to show us that it is the grace of God in the gospel that fuels us for Christian living. It is the grace of God in the gospel that fuels us for Christian living. Okay, this is what Paul is going to do for us. And we're going to look at this passage under two headings. The first is the school of grace, and the second is the heart of Christ. We'll spend more time in the first heading and briefly touch on the second point towards the end, but it is the school of grace in verses 11 through 13, and the heart of Christ in verse 14. And I would like for us to imagine that we're going to enter into these two realms this morning. The first, the school of grace, where the driving principle, pun intended, is grace. The school of grace, where the driving principle is grace. And then into the heart of Christ later on, where we will see what was driving Jesus when he came to rescue lost sinners like you and me. So these are our two headings this morning. Firstly, the school of grace in verses 11 through 13. If you look at your Bibles, Paul begins this section by reminding us that the grace of God has appeared. The word appeared can refer to something becoming visible, such as the sun in early morning, or it can refer more metaphorically to something becoming known. And so what Paul is saying here and what he is referring to is he's saying that the grace of God has become visible, the grace of God has become known. And what Paul is referring to here is he's referring to the incarnation and the crucifixion of Christ. Remember that Jesus came to this earth as a baby in the manger in Bethlehem. He carried out a ministry of compassion and care towards the masses. And then towards the end of his life, he went to a Roman cross in order to be crucified. He was buried. He was raised on the third day to conquer death. And he ascended back to the Father. It is through that life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus that the grace of God has appeared to us. It has become known, it has become visible. And I want you to notice with me, look with me to verse 11, the effects of the appearing of this grace. 
Because when God acts in grace towards the world, it has far-reaching effects. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to the Jews. No. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to the righteous of the earth. No. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. That's what Paul says. Put simply, when God acts in grace towards the world, it has far-reaching global implications. And the phrase can be taken in one of two ways here. It can simply mean that salvation is now available for all people. Salvation is available to any, any individual who would repent and believe in the gospel. That's what it could mean. Or it could be a reference to salvation is now available for all classes or kinds of people. But either way, I want to clarify what Paul is not saying is that all people will now automatically be saved and go to heaven because of what Jesus has done. We know that from other places in Scripture. What Paul is saying is that salvation is available for all kinds of people, or salvation is available to all people if they would repent and believe. Maybe two quick illustrations from the book of Titus would be helpful. One is, is that in the verses just prior, Paul is speaking to slaves. And slaves would have been kind of the bottom barrel of bottom of the barrel of society, and yet some of them had been saved. So even if you're at the bottom barrel of society, Paul is saying you can be saved. On um, another another thing from the book of Titus is that he was writing to Titus, who was ministering on the island of Crete. Now Cretans had a um, undesirable reputation, if you will. They were known to be lying, they were known to be lazy, they were known to be gluttonous, and they were just, just a generally wicked people. And yet, Paul's writing to Titus and writing indirectly to these people, and yet some of them were becoming saved and becoming Christians. And Paul's saying, hey, even if you're a Cretan, you can be saved. Okay? Um, I won't give a modern analogy to the Cretans. But um, what Paul's saying here is that God has far God's salvation and his grace has far-reaching effects and implications. Not a person is excluded. God's grace is sufficient for all kinds of people, all kinds of individuals, if you would repent and believe in that grace. I could have inserted this at any point in the sermon, probably, but perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you've been coming for a time, listening to the preaching, so maybe a friend has invited you, um, and you think that this Christianity thing is good for these folks, but it's not really for me. And the reason why you think that it's not really for me is because you have concluded to yourself, or perhaps you know someone like this, that you are beyond the grace of God. You are beyond the reach of the grace of God because of whatever reason it might be, because of your background, because you're not religious enough, because you feel like you cannot measure up to the people who are around you, or, or, or because you have dishonored God in some really real significant and shameful ways in the past. And if you're thinking along those lines, then let verse 11 correct your thinking, because it says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. The, the grace of God has far-reaching implications, far-reaching effects, and not a person is beyond its reach. Because here's the thing, Christian salvation is not so much about how good you are. It's not even about how bad you are. 
but it is about the enormity and the sufficiency of the grace of God shown to us in the gospel when Jesus came to rescue lost sinners like you and me. Not a one is beyond the reach of the grace of God. Because it's not about us, ultimately, it's about him and his grace. That's where the passage begins, with the grace of God shown at the proper time through the person and work of Jesus, which brings salvation to all people. So if you look with me to verse 11, God's grace saves us. If you look at verse 12, God's grace also trains us. Verse 12, for the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce certain things and to live in accordance with certain principles. So let me just repeat it again. The grace of God has appeared to save us, and the grace of God has appeared to train us. And this is quite vital for us to grasp. If you can understand the interplay between grace and your Christian life, that's going to be huge for you and for me. Okay? And let me maybe put forward... um, kind of a a notion in our minds that might be there which is erroneous according to the scriptures. So I think sometimes this is how we as Christians think. Okay, my salvation. Jesus died on the cross for my sins and was raised on the third day. That's by grace. Okay, now I come over to my Christian life and I know that God calls me to do certain things. God calls me to follow the Bible. He He calls me to live a certain kind of lifestyle, right? That's more based on my own effort. And maybe that's a little bit overstated. Maybe that's not exactly how you would word it. But often we creep into that sort of thinking. Saved by grace, and I live my Christian life by my own effort. But we have to work harder to think through our Christian life better. Because what, you, what we see in this passage is that the same grace which has appeared in order to save you and me is the grace that trains us towards godliness, okay? So, in other words, the primary motivator, enabler, and instructor in our Christian lives is this thing called grace. So negatively put then, we are not driven ultimately by a desire to fit in and be like those around us, and we are not driven ultimately by a desire to achieve a certain level of morality, We are not driven ultimately by a fear God might smite me if I disobey, and we are not driven ultimately by confidence in ourselves to be good people, okay? We are driven by the overwhelming reality that God sent his son into the world for the sake of our salvation, even though we did not deserve it in the slightest, and also that God has set us on a trajectory towards godliness and has given us his Holy Spirit in order to be able to live out the life that he intends for us. I want to clarify this because I think the way that grace works in our initial salvation, the way that grace works in our Christian life is a little bit different. Upon initial salvation, we are saved by grace and we believe and we repent and we receive the gift of salvation. When it comes to our sanctification, though, it is still by grace, but it requires effort and exertion and fighting on our part, and we're going to see that in a moment. But the point that I want all of us to understand is that you and I, though we graduate from elementary school, high school, college, university, we never graduate from the school of grace. We are always and forever perpetually students of grace until the day that we die. It's interesting Um, if you speak to people who have walked with Christ 
and have been believers for a very long time, I think the testimony of their lips is not, now that I've lived the Christian life for a long time, I see myself as needing God's grace less, but rather, now that I've walked with Christ for, many, for these many decades, I actually see my need for Christ's grace more. We never graduate from the school of grace. We are perpetually in need of grace to live the Christian life. So with all that in mind, I want us to look to the specifics of verse 12. Okay? Beginning in verse 11 again, the grace of God has appeared, and it trains us. The word training can refer to the uh, bringing up of children, or to, and therefore to educate or to instruct it has connotations of either chastening and discipline as well. And Paul says that God's grace trains us both negatively as well as positively. Okay, we're going to take a look at the negatively first. God's grace trains us, look with me to verse 12, to renounce or say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Okay, I'm going to explain these terms very quickly. Ungodliness, it doesn't, that doesn't refer to kind of overt wickedness or or super great acts of evil, but ungodliness refers to a mindset that neglects and ignores God. So a person could be super morally upright, a good citizen, uh, really kind, and yet still be ungodly, because ungodliness has to do with how much room we have in our minds and in our hearts and in our lives for God. And Paul's saying that we have to say no to ungodliness. And second, he talks about worldly desires, and very simply put, these are the desires in our hearts which are often strong for anything that dishonors or displeases God in his ways, okay? So this is what worldly desires is a reference to. And Paul says that the first thing that grace does for us is that it teaches us to say no to these two categories of things. This is really important because the, the natural mind thinks this way. We think, okay, God is gracious to me. He will forgive me. That gives me the liberty to live my life the way that I want. And I'm not saying necessarily you, but I think that that, that is the temptation of our human hearts and flesh, that God is gracious. He will forgive me. Therefore, I can pursue sin. And the way the Bible speaks and the way the Bible thinks is not that way. It actually says no God has been immensely gracious to you in order to set you free from the bondage of the power of sin, and therefore you are to pursue not sin, but godliness. The other corrective in this phrase for us, the grace of God trains us to renounce or say no to ungodliness and worldly desires, um, is this. Everywhere we go in our culture, subtly or very directly, uh, we are told the message that we are to follow our hearts and we sh shall indulge our desires. And while there might be a smidgen of helpfulness to those sentiments, the vast majority of it is bunk according to the Bible. The Bible is actually much more honest with us. It tells us that some of the desires in our hearts and some of the things which come out of our hearts should not be pursued regardless of how strong that desire is or regardless of how persistent it is. God's word is honest with us that some of the things that come out of our hearts are actually bad, they're dishonoring to God, they're hurtful towards others, and they wreak havoc on our souls, and therefore the grace of God in kindness towards you and me tells us to say no to them. 
That's the first thing that the grace of God does for us. Rather than telling us to pursue sin, it tells us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions or desires. A few months ago, Alyssa's dad was uh, working in our bathroom, and he found some mold in a part of the drywall, I think. And so a quick mud and paint job turned into a mini bathroom reno, which was of benefit to us and of more work for him. Um, but he needed to take the old drywall out, and he needed to put new gyprock in, and both steps were necessary, right? He needed to take the old drywall out because there was mold there, and he needed to put new drywall in, otherwise we'd be without a wall. Both steps are necessary, and so it is spiritually. We need to both remove and replace. We need to put off and put on and as one preacher put it, we need to say no and live yes. Okay? So we're going to keep going to the living yes part. It says, grace trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Okay? Increasingly, Christians should be characterized by mastery of himself and his passions. Okay, and the word increasingly is important there, not perfectly right away, but just as life goes on, as you follow Christ more, there should be an increasing um, reality of these things in your life. Okay, Christian should be characterized by mastery of himself and his passions, conduct and speech towards others that is pleasing to God, and a mindset that acknowledges God in his day-to-day living. Okay? So we need to remove and we need to replace, we need to put off and put on, we need to say no and live yes. And perhaps maybe one example and one illustration will be helpful to kind of help us to wrap our minds around what Paul's trying to get after here. And the first of these is a person who would struggle with looking at explicit or inappropriate material online. Okay, so I think here's kind of the dynamic that would uh, work itself out. Okay, so here's what the temptation comes and says. The temptation says, gratify that desire. Indulge yourself. If you will do this, you will be happy and satisfied. Nobody's watching, okay? It's not a big deal. But grace comes in and says this. Um, you could give in. Your relationship with Christ has nothing to do with your performance. It is true that if you give in and you repent and you confess, then Christ will forgive you. That is the gospel. But I also want you to know this. It is for these very moments that Jesus came into the world. Because here's the thing. Jesus came not just to die on the cross for your sins so that you could be forgiven, but he came so that such desires as these and others which are wicked like it that you could be set free from them. Jesus came not just so that we could be forgiven, but he came so that we could be freed. And these passions and these desires which have ruled your life for so long, if you are a Christian, then you have already been set free from them. That's what grace comes and says. And not only that, it's not just a matter of saying no. Grace comes and says, and listen, God has a much more satisfying, much more lasting plan for you to live the pure and wholesome life that he intends for you. This is what grace comes and does. And second, I want to give you an illustration. It's an extended one. Um, most of you have 
probably heard of the, the movie or book Unbroken or the name Louis Zamperini. Okay? You've probably even heard it in a sermon before. Um, and I won't get into all the details of this story, but suffice it to say, Zamperini, who was an American soldier during World War II, suffered greatly as a prisoner of war to the Japanese. He was treated in a cruel manner, was beat brutally, and was particularly targeted by a Japanese corporal now infamously known as the Bird. Or not now, I think he was known back then as the Bird as well. And Zamperini would go on to survive the war, which is quite amazing. Um, but his heart was filled with anxiety and hatred in those early post-war years. He would have nightmares about the Bird, he would withdraw into depression and lash out unpredictably, and he resorted to alcohol in order to find solace. He was enslaved, he was miserable, and he was hopeless. But then in 1949, Zamperini, I think, reluctantly went to a Billy Graham crusade when Billy Graham was beginning his uh, kind of mass ministry back then. Uh, and Zamperini heard the gospel, and he was saved. And amazingly, he was saved, and the night that he was converted, he actually went home and poured out all the alcohol, uh, I guess, that he owned. And a few years later, Zamperini would go on a speaking tour in Tokyo, and he had the opportunity to speak to hundreds of Japanese war criminals. So he spoke to them, and then afterwards he requested that he be able to speak particularly with the guards who were over him. So towards this group, he jumps off the stage, runs down to them, threw his arms around them, and they didn't know what to do. When one of the soldiers asked him how he could forgive these men who had treated him so badly, this is how Louis responded. Well, Mr. Sasaki, the greatest story of forgiveness the world's ever known was the cross. When Christ was crucified, Jesus said, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. And then Zamperini continued, it is only through the cross that I can come back here and say this, but I do forgive you. It's quite amazing. Um, I bring Zamperini up because he is a man, he's a great example of a man who allowed the gospel not just to save him, that is, to forgive him for his sins, but he allowed the gospel to shape the way that he viewed life, to shape the way that he lived life, and to shape the way that he related with others. This is what Paul's calling for in this text. He is calling for you and for me not just to see the gospel as a means to get to heaven, but the gospel as the lens through which we would view ourselves in all of life. We can give more and more examples, but this is the burden of this text. You and I need to be constantly reminded of and exposed to the simple, profound, and amazing grace of the gospel so that it would shape the way that we think and it would shape the way that we live. This is what Christians do. They are both saved and shaped by the gospel. 
Paul completes this section by pointing us to the future. And this is really, really key. So if you look at, think, verse 13, Paul points us essentially to the future a little bit. He says that we are people who wait for something. And this is really key because um, knowing that there is an end to something makes it bearable. Because even though our redemption is amazing, and even though Jesus' work in your life and mine is amazing, there's no doubt that it's hard. We have to daily die to ourselves. We have to daily battle the flesh and residing sin. And Paul says that we are to do these things in the present age, which is a wicked, godless age. And so it's not like everyone else is doing this and that we're just going along for the ride. It's that we are actually swimming against the current of the culture and of our society and of the devil and of the world and of our own flesh. And so it is hard. But Paul gives us a vision of the future in order to help us to keep going. Oh, come back to that. Several summers ago, um, I had a summer job and I worked at a sawmill or a lumber mill. Okay, and most of you probably know what that is, but basically the process at a sawmill is that they take the logs, okay, that's been sitting in the yard for a time, and they make them into lumber that can be used for building or construction or whatever you want to build, like a bathroom or pews. Um, but so, so that's the process, and so you can imagine, okay, so the, the tree first needs to be debarked, uh, then it needs to be, uh, then I think it becomes like a square-shaped thing, and then th that's cut into bigger boards. Uh, some somewhere along the way, it needs to be planed and probably cut into smaller boards and maybe even treated. So you can just imagine all of the sawdust, rocks, dirt, uh, random pieces of wood that w and bark that would come off of a process like that. And I had the privilege to be a part of the cleanup crew at Blue Ridge Lumber which meant that we were responsible for cleaning the entire facility, including in, around, and under the machines. It was, in case you're wanting to be on a cleanup crew at a lumber mill, an awful job. It was super dirty. It was hot and sweaty. And um, to top it all off, uh, a lot of the times we were working 12-hour shifts overnight from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. So just like an awful, awful job. Um, <laughs> but part of what allowed me to keep going and not look for other work was, one was the pay, because it paid really well. But the other part was that there was an end in sight. I knew that at the end of summer, I would be done and off back to California and to seminary. And as Christians, there is an end in sight. We will not be fighting our sin forever. We will not suffer the effects of the curse eternally. Bouts of doubt, discouragement, and depression will be done away with in the future. Our encounters with pain, sickness, and disease will one day come to an end. And the relational strife that may seem so prevalent will be no more. And our unruly passions and wicked desires will be snuffed out. And all of this will happen when our redemption is finally complete, when our blessed hope appears, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And I want you to note the two appearings in our passage. Look with me just at your Bibles again, verse 11 and verse 13. There is the past appearing of grace in verse 11. And there's the future appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in verse 13. I am by no means a musician, so I could be wrong on this, but I think this is how it works, okay? If you're part of an orchestra, and you're playing, I don't know, like the trumpet or something, then I think that where your eyes are in one of two spots, the entire um, performance. One is on your music, on your stand, right? And then the other, maybe like chameleon eyes, like one eye on one and one eye on the other, or like just kind of back and forth, is on the conductor, okay? So, so the idea is, is that we have, the musician has one eye on his music and one eye on the conductor. And that's how he plays his part in the orchestra for the entire performance. Um, and this is what the Christian does as well. You see, because Paul understood that when Jesus came the first time, so, something utterly unique and significant was happening. Paul understood that when Jesus came the first time, he purchased and accomplished redemption for sinners like for you and for me. And that in the first coming of Jesus, the grace of God was on display like at no other time in the history of the world. So Paul understood the first coming of Jesus and, the, and its significance. And Paul understood the second coming of Jesus and its significance as well. Paul understands that when Jesus will come the second time, he understands that it will be at that point that all of the promises of God will finally be fulfilled and our salvation will finally be complete. And Paul lives the Christian life in this way with one eye back towards Calvary and one eye forward towards the return of Jesus. And this is how you and I, friend, will live the Christian life by grace in a fruitful manner. We live and we understand that the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus are the most important events in the history of the universe, and we live our lives with those as our reference points. In the first one, he came and purchased our salvation. In the second one, he will come and complete our salvation. And the one who's going to return, notice with me what he is referred to as. He is going to return. He is the, the great God, or our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Very quickly, this is one of the few places in the New Testament where Jesus is specifically addressed as God. Okay, so the New Testament writers were not afraid to ascribe deity to Christ, which is quite significant if you think about the Apostle Paul, who was a Jewish monotheist, and so how is it that there can be God the Father, and how is it that Christ himself can also be God? Um, but they were not afraid to ascribe deity to Christ. But I want you to look at the second word. He, he is the Savior, and it is the Savior who is going to return, and it is the Savior that's heart that we're going to look at now in the second point, the heart of Christ. So we've taken a look at the school of grace, now we're going to take a look at the heart of Christ in verse 14. And... We've already touched upon a lot of this, so we're going to kind of move through this verse quickly, or more quickly. Uh, and I want to say this at the outset of this point. If you're a person who struggles with identity, which may or may not be, this is just my subjective sense, but something that maybe younger people struggle with a little bit more, 
Um, if you struggle with the issue of identity or answering the question, who am I, and you are a Christian, then I think that this passage or this verse has quite a bit of help for you. First, out of love, Jesus willingly gave himself up for you. Out of compassion and pity for sinful humanity, Jesus left the comforts and joys of heaven in order to be born into this world and die a gruesome death on a Roman cross. He did this for you and for me out of love. Second, Jesus did this in order to rescue you from the powers of evil and darkness. And you and I often don't think of ourselves in this way, but how the Bible depicts us and how the New Testament writers speak of us before we are in Christ is that we have a built-in desire to rebel against God. And the language is even stronger than that. We are enslaved to various passions and pleasures. We are under the chains and shackles of sin and death before we come to Christ. But Jesus, out of love for you and for me, gave himself up on the cross and paid the price that was required for yours and my freedom. He paid the ransom payment so that you and I could be set free from the powers of sin and darkness. So in terms of identity, you are loved, you are freed. Third, Jesus did this so that we could be a people cleansed and washed from all the defilements of sin. Okay? I think a lot of times when we talk about the gospel, we speak about the guilt that comes from sin. And it's true. We are guilty before God outside of Jesus because we have rebelled against him and broken his laws. But sin also has another awful effect upon you and me, and that is that it makes us unclean. Not physically, but morally and spiritually, it makes us unclean before God and in our experience. I'm not sure if you've ever felt that before, um, or if you feel just great regret over something that you have done, or, or shame, which is a desire to hide from God and from others because you are not happy or okay with who you are and what you are. Well, what this passage says to you is that if you would embrace Christ and trust in his saving work, then you can be cleansed from head to toe and be made squeaky, spiritually clean. That doesn't mean that everything will become perfect in your life right away, but it does mean that Jesus will invade your life and begin to recreate you into the man or woman that you are intended to be. Jesus loves us, Jesus freed us, and he has cleansed us. And fourth, and perhaps most significantly of all, Jesus did all of this for us, and I'm pulling all these things from verse 14, by the way. Jesus did all of this for us so that he might make us his treasured possession. Jesus willingly went to the cross for our sins. He willingly went to the cross in order to redeem us from the powers of sin and darkness. And he, can't, he went to the cross in order to purify us to be a people for his own possession. The very purpose of his coming and the very goal of his dying was so that you and I, as individuals, 
but so that you and I corporately could belong to Jesus, the creator and the redeemer of the universe. This is what Jesus has done for us. And so friends, if you struggle with identity, then then let this be heard in your heart this morning. Out of love for you, Jesus went to the cross and gave up his own life for you. He did that in order to, out of pity for you, because you were chained uh, and, and, and under the shackles of sin and darkness, Jesus went to the cross in order to pay the ransom price so that you could be set free. He has also done all of these things for us so that we could be cleansed and purified. And I think the capstone of it all, he did all of this so that we could become his treasured, chosen, and precious people. I think that sometimes um, we can conceive of what Jesus has done for us. Like, you know, let's say there's a homeless man who's begging on the streets. Say I walk by and I give him a 20. Um, which I, I never do, by the way, so don't get false impressions of me. But um, so, I, um, so, you know, I give him a 20. And, you know, it's, it's, it's undeserved, it's gracious, it's generous, but it's not life-altering. And I'm not saying that you or I would say that the death of Jesus is not life-altering, but the question is, how much does the grace of God in the gospel affect you and me on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis? I think the way that we should think of the gospel is more like the homeless man being um, taken in by a rich man, brought to his home, and treated as if he were one of his sons. That would be life-altering. And friends, in a very real sense, everything that we are, if you're a Christian, as individuals and as a church, we owe to Jesus. Everything, everything that we are, I owe, or we owe to Jesus. Everything that I have, I owe to Jesus. And here's where the passage ends. If, if all of that is true, that he delivered us from the power of sin and darkness, that he purified us from all defilement and uncleanness, that he gave himself so that we could become his treasured possession, then that ought to mark us and that ought to drive us in life. And we ought to be passionate about the things that he ought to be passionate, that he is passionate about. And I left this to the very end. We're going to talk about good works in just a moment, just for a brief moment. But we need to get the order right. We need to be clear in our minds as to who we are before we can be clear about what we are to do. We are certainly to be a people who are passionate about good works, which is what Titus, or which is where Paul will go in a moment. But we need to be very clear as to who we are. We are the redeemed, cleansed, and blood-bought people of Jesus. That's who we are. And it's out of that that we can be passionate about pursuing godliness and that we can be passionate about doing good works, which is where the passage ends. We are to be a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Okay, this is what we are to be about. And again, not so that we might be saved on account of our works, but so that we might show ourselves as belonging to the greatest Savior by our works. Friends, we are a greatly privileged people. And everything that we are 
And everything that we have, we owe to Jesus. And on the contrary, if it were not for Jesus, we would have absolutely nothing. So let us sing to him now. We're going to sing, All I Have is Christ. Let us sing to the one. Let us sing to the one who has made us and who has redeemed us and who has made us his treasured possession. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this text in the book of Titus. And I pray that your gospel would permeate, invade, influence, and shape us as a people. Help us to be people who pursue godliness and who are passionate about good works. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.